Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll learn about the CBD oil that may help those suffering from a variety of conditions. We'll also talk to a professor at the University of Scranton who recently joined others in his field to pen a letter in support of a plan to cut taxes for corporations and individuals. And we'll hear from the former Vanity Fair and New Yorker editor Tina Brown regarding her experiences with Donald Trump, Harvey Weinstein, and Ronald and Nancy Reagan during her storied career. A recent forum held in our region brought together supporters of medical cannabis and CBD oils. The forum was hosted by 8CAM Holistic Nursing in partnership with the Pennsylvania Community Medical Cannabis Forum. CBD is short for cannabidiol, the name of a compound found in a cannabis plant. CBD is a component of marijuana, but what's missing is a large amount of THC which is known for its mind-altering ability. CBD is generally extracted from hemp, which is different than the product marijuana growers cultivate. The proponents of CBD oil recently joined Entercom talk show host Frank Andrews to discuss their belief the product can treat a variety of illnesses, including epilepsy, anxiety, and chronic pain. Panelist Terry Shenfield is president of 8CAM Holistic Nursing and a former respiratory therapist who speaks about alternative medicine issues. Nate Eaches and Ron Solt also joined the discussion. Both men previously played in the NFL and spoke about their own experiences with CBD oil. Nate Eaches shared his experience first. I was a former Pennsylvania State champion, a former Colgate University football player, and, and played uh, a year and a half with the Kansas City Chiefs. And, and I started getting into this business last year in the hemp extract, hemp-derived CBD business, uh, where you know, the product really helped my grandma. You know, she had a, a severe stage of cancer and has really helped her. The doctors gave her you know, some several months to live, and she and now it's been a few years, and she's really benefited. And I've been in this for a year and a half, and I've seen it you know, help children with you know, seizures go from 400 seizures down to none you know a child with autism that hasn't that didn't speak in two years and and then took the product and and then spoke i had a blind woman actually take the product and say it's the best best product she's ever taken you hear testimonials like that 
you, you know that the stuff is, you know, helping people and it's, it's the real deal. And also in the studio with us is Ron Solt. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in this. My name is Ron Solt. I uh, actually started playing for Coughlin High School back in 1979, I believe, 78, long, long time ago. But anyway, to make a long story even longer, I went to Maryland, played at the University of Maryland there for four years. Then I went, to, I was drafted by the Indianapolis Colts, played several years there. I got traded to uh, the Philadelphia Eagles. Back in the mid-80s. I played throughout the whole 80s, we'll say, more or less. If I, had, if I had the CBD oil when I played, I'm sure I had five or six more years in. I'm sure I would have. Wow. Unbelievable. And on the line with us right now is Terry Shenfield. And Terry, tell us a little bit about where you are and what your role in this is. My name is Terry Shenfield. I'm actually from East Stroudsburg. I've been in the health field for the last 25 years. I was an education coordinator at the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. I have a traditional background in medicine, but over the last five years, I completed my master's in complementary and alternative medicine with a focus on herbal medicine. I am the owner of a company called Atticam, and my company offers continuous education for healthcare practitioners, in particular nursing. I am a provider of the Pennsylvania Nursing Association, and I've been speaking about medical cannabis in public forums for the last three years, and I brought in many excellent speakers during that time. And recently I met with Nate and Todd and they invited me into this program. Nate, you know, when, when, when my wife talked about this for our daughter, I said, marijuana, no, no marijuana. And I believe that there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. We're not talking about somebody sitting out in the field smoking a joint here. Would you explain what, what this is? Is CBD, THC, the whole process? Right. So CBD comes from the marijuana plant and the hemp plant. The product that's in, in vape shops here in Pennsylvania and, and in some chiropractors and doctors' office is, is the hemp-derived CBD. That's a product that has under 0.3 of 1% THC, and that's very high in CBD. And marijuana has above 0.3 of of 1% THC. So anything above 0.3 of THC is considered marijuana. Anything below that 0.3, so only a trace, is considered hemp. So that's kind of the difference. So, you know, the hemp can be shipped across state lines because there's already federal law in place of that hemp extract. You know, the bill, the bill went in back in 2014, the, the federal farm bill, the 2014 Agricultural Farm Bill of Section uh, 7606. So that's kind of the difference there. Now, Ron, you, you said that you'd be playing longer if you had CBD. What has it done for you? Easily. You know what? When I play I had approximately 13 operations. It got to a point where I was going, okay, what hurts the worst now at the end of the year? My right knee, then I go left shoulder, then left left knee, left right shoulder. It's, it's amazing. I can't even believe it, to be honest with you. But uh, if I was fortunate enough to not to be operated on until I got the league, then uh, I'm all right. But could you imagine if I was cut on when I was still playing ball at high school? I would never have made it. Since I, as a parent, misunderstood this, are there a lot of people in the medical profession that misunderstand this? Absolutely. 100%. Actually, a lot of people in the medical profession don't even know about it. Typically, the physicians in medical school are not even taught about this um, use of the cannabis as a healer. Just recently, over the last few years, has there been any interest? I just think recently in, in uh, Mass General in uh, Boston, they're going to make that part of their curriculum. So there is a big misconception, and I get so many healthcare practitioners who come to my conferences, and they just say, wow, I didn't even know any of this. And I try to teach them that, you know, cannabis is 
you know, it's not heaven sent, but it has its indications for certain type of conditions. And I think from a very evidence-based point of view, so when you talk about cannabis, I say, where's the evidence? So I always back everything up with the evidence that's out there. All right, Terry, I, I want to read a text to you, and I, I want you to talk about it from, a, I guess, from a, a biological, physiological point of view. Someone texted and said, I am an advocate for CBD oil. I live in northeastern Pennsylvania in the Moscow area. I have discovered CBD, added it to my daily routine. I suffered from tremors due to nerve damage. Today, thanks to CBD, they are no longer visible to others. I use a product, and I am 100% behind it. Now, is it for everybody, Terry? Well, it could be and it could not be. For example, there are different medical conditions that respond very well to CBD. And those medications are, no, those uh, conditions are for anxiety, for sleep management. It also could be a mood enhancer. It's also good for epilepsy. It's also good for nerve damage. And it's also good for pain modulation. Uh, it could be a great pain relief. It is also a very powerful antioxidant. A lot of neurogenerative disease comes from um, oxidative stress in the brain. And this causes inflammation. And the CBD oil has been known to reduce the inflammation in the brain. There are many studies pointing to this. Also, it works on the same line with Parkinson's and um, epileptic seizures. There's a whole host of um, conditions that could benefit from CBD oil. CBD oil is a component of the cannabis plant. There are two main cannabinoids in the cannabis plant. One is THC, which gives the psychoactive component, and the other one is the cannabidiol, or CBD. CBD does not have a psychoactive component, and basically it doesn't get you high. If anything, it actually reduces kind of stress in your brain and anxiety. So it does work very well, and there's um, a bunch of evidence out there for each kind of condition. Ron, Ron, people want to know how you take it. Oh, you know what I did? I, I, I took it as Toddy just told me to take half of a half of a, the the amount in the morning is about how many cc's is that Todd? maybe yeah you're, you're, you're gonna take about uh it's, it comes in a dropper form which is a tincture uh gel caps uh lotion and yeah, you take about you know 20 to 25 migs it's about a half to three quarters of a dropper morning and night so that that's kind of how you would uh you would take it we, we have an interesting text here and i, I this this tear i don't know which one of you guys want to talk about this but someone texted and said i have moderate to severe rheumatoid arthritis and i've thought taught about using cb oil, but my employer has a strict policy. How does that work? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, same, this is what I'm saying. The same thing is all know, the colleges now, all the colleges are worried about the, the CBD affecting uh, their their drug test, but the bottom line is, there's no, no effect at all. Right. It's not, I mean, it's not marijuana. It's, not. it's a derivative. It's not like I said, you're not just, you know, smoking a joint in the back room. Correct. Right. I, again, you know, there, there is a trace. Again, you know, hemp defined is, has under 0.3 of 1% THC. So there's only a trace of it. So, you know, you're not getting high from it. People don't want to get high. They want to feel better. And again, the, these, these high CBD, low THC products are, are getting, making people feel better. Ultimately. Now, now on, on the website, it uses the phrase pain. Okay. We have had so many shows about opioid addiction and people take opioids for pain. And I said, well, is it possible that this could ease that problem, Terry? Is it possible that this could be something that would help people with chronic pain? 
Oh, absolutely. I work with a neurologist, uh, Dr. Medavosky from New Jersey, who has treated over 2,500 patients. And he has reduced opiate use on almost all of his patients with the use of cannabis. There's different ways of going about it. You know, for pain, um, you can decrease your taking of opioids if you supplement with some um, CBD oil and you just, you know, slowly titrate it up in the dose of one and you decrease the dose of the other till you get to that correct comfort level. Uh, Nate, a lot of research on this or, or is it kind of too new and nobody really knows what's going on? If you if you go online, I mean, there's research, but it's overseas. It's in, it's in Germany, it's in England, it's in Spain. There's research overseas. Now the doctors in, the, in this country want, want to see the research here. It's coming, you know, everything. It's been a little bit of a pushback. You know, hemp was banned from 1937 to 2014 and now, you know, medical, medical marijuana is coming on boy Pennsylvania just passed so now you know Pennsylvania will, will people will be able to get their cards you know here coming up but you, you can actually get your cards now and, and then you know you can get the you know product will be available in the spring but uh yeah it's it, yeah you know, we, it's come we a long were surprised way. we took our little girl children's hospital in Philadelphia and while in the emergency room there was a physician that came in and said that he is doing research on CBD and and you know everybody looked at him like he had lobsters coming out of his ears but <laughs> I think that the, the the biggest text that we're getting here Nate is if people have this pain if they have a problem will it show up as positive on a drug test so the the answer is it could but i think uh, you know if you have a job and and you're getting tested you know there is actually a thc free product that is that is also very beneficial so what i would say if you're getting tested you know Go, go with the THC free product, but I think more, you know there's going to be a lot of people that aren't getting tested that that can benefit. But the people that are getting tested, there is absolutely a THC free. There's a, there's a sublingual you take it by mouth. There's the, there's a gel caps and also lotions of THC free as well. Perry, I want to I want to ask you to respond to this. My, my little girl takes it takes CBD oil. As I said, she's been on it for a while, um, but a lot of the doctors. Even some of the, 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 the highbrow neurologists think this is like silly, like, you know, why bother that it really does anything and it's just a scam. What, what would you say to that? I would say that's the wrong approach by the doctor. Many doctors are so careful about their license. They have a good living. They can live in a nice home, have medical expense, uh, you know, student loan expenses. And they seem to take the very safe road without even opening up much about the opportunity. We're literally programmed with cannabinoid receptors. It's, it's literally a science. There's research uh, over overseas that there's universities now are doing research on the endocannabinoid system that we have as humans and also pets and mammals. So there's also pets that are benefiting from the CBD as well. A lot of, a lot of people in Florida, a lot of people in uh, New Jersey and Pennsylvania that are buying this for their pets because ultimately these pets have this same biological receptor system, this endocannabinoid system that we all have within our, it's a biological receptor system within our human bodies. We have a question coming in. I think this is going to be a very, very interesting question. Julia, what is your question for our guests? My question is, my husband right now is on opioids and he's going through a pain doctor and they're monitoring very closely. Right now, insurance is paying for these opioids. They are discussing him going on to cannabis. If he goes on to that, how 
do we pay for that? It won't be covered under insurance, I don't think. No one's actually saying, is it going to be have to pay out of our pocket? Uh, yeah, I would say insurance companies uh, wouldn't, aren't going to cover, um, you know, medical marijuana. Um, the, the, the hemp extract or CBD products it w- would be cheaper, um, you know, but but again, yeah, the, your husband's on opiates, so I, hopefully he, he can, uh, you know, come off those with the help of, you know, medical cannabis. Entercom talk show host Frank Andrews recently spoke to proponents of CBD oil and medical cannabis on his show. You are listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. While admitting economists sometimes are at odds with each other, 137 of them recently put their names to a letter of support for the tax reform that's winding its way through the United States Senate and House. The Senate recently approved its proposed plan and sent it over to Congress for a process called reconciliation. The GOP is aiming at cutting corporate taxes significantly and promising relief to middle-class families who have been under pressure due to a lagging economy. Dr. Edward Scahill of the University of Scranton signed that letter, and he spoke to us recently about his reasons for supporting tax cuts. It's not going to solve all of our fiscal problems, to be sure. But if you, if you looked at that letter, and I know you did, uh, you know that the corporate tax rate is the highest of any industrialized country at 35%. And um, it just gives corporations a reason to move their operations elsewhere and to hire a lot of accountants and lawyers to try to get that tax uh, liability down since it's so high. So. I'm hoping it works. Um, Certainly, if you think uh, corporations want to make the most profit, they should produce more to earn more profit when their tax rate goes down. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed. But to tell you the truth, um, I I think I'm more concerned with tax simplification. Since I knew I was going to talk to you, I tracked down some numbers. On average, okay, Mm -hmm. um, taxpayers spend 54 hours filling out their federal tax forms. That's about over eight billion hours total, and if you if you evaluated the monetary value of people's time, the dollar value would be greater than the GDP of Kenya. I mean that's just crazy. And in addition to cutting the corporate tax rate, among the other many provisions, and some of them will change. Uh, it, it just got voted uh, to a conference committee, so they'll do some more wheeling dealing before the final bill. Uh, comes out of Congress. <clears throat> do you believe but, that this, and to yeah. that point, do you believe that what is happening right now will make the process more streamlined? I mean, a lot of us just go and we get an accountant, and that costs money, yeah. or you have the time. And, and I think a lot of Americans are terrified by taxis, and I know I am, because when I think the IRS might come after me, I am scared. So is this a, a ways and means to make it more simplified? I mean, do you see that well, happening? With- well, the one provision I was going to mention has to do with doubling the standard deduction. And uh, this year it's 6350 for a single taxpayer. So that'll double to over $12,000. So if your deductions are going to be less than that, you can just take the standard deduction. I thought they kind of missed an opportunity to sell tax, tax simplification because if you saw some of the news reports, congressmen were showing this little card. Right. Um, and said, so, well, you can file your taxes and just send it in. 
that if that works, I'll pay higher taxes. I'll just if it's that simple, you know, here's my income, uh, here's the standard deduction, and mail it in. I think that's a great selling point. I, I hope we get that closer to that, but I'm old enough now to be very cynical about anything uh, the federal government proposes to do. So what you're saying, just so I have clarity on this because I'm terrible at taxes, is that in the future, if the deduction is so high, I might not have to hire an accountant and itemize and worry and, That's and struggle? Right. Yes. Yes. Well, yeah. all right. That is a selling. Yeah, that sounds for pretty good, right? Yeah. <laughs> now you're in higher ed, as we mentioned at the I University am. of Scranton. Yeah, I am ed in higher ed. That's, that's right. You put the ed in higher ed. Do you ever yeah. tell your students that, by the way? No. You should. No, I don't. You no. want to do that? You could. That's but, but, on me. But I, I'll, I'll tell you this: my my email, or not my email address, but one of my passwords is econ ed. Mm. Okay, so, but if you want to use mine, so it's, go so ahead. It's econ. Education, economics, education. So it's kind of very good. Ed, yeah. Let me ask you a question about um, the ongoing debate over some of the deductions, which might go away, and they seem to be troubling to young people who carry the burden of student loans. And I saw a story yesterday where so many—I think it's over eighty percent—at most colleges and universities, students go out of the college or university, and they have debt. What about taking away that uh, interest deduction for student loans? Are you saying that the raising of this other, uh, the doubling of this other thing, will negate that? Well, it could. In fact, uh, one person who's concerned about that was my younger son, Steve. I saw him over Thanksgiving. That's the first thing he complained about. And uh, that's, you know, I was I was watching somebody else on TV last week, and he said, you know, this could be the next bubble crisis because the default rate on student loans is uh, disturbingly high. And uh, if students can't deduct interest on that, I, I am worried about that. So... You know, I'm hoping that if they do double the standard deduction, that will that will help. Okay. And what about uh, the the mortgage deduction and and some of the things with property taxes and and local taxes? What you said before does that still apply? That maybe you won't need those deductions anymore. Well, that's that's, that's going to be the biggie. I think the state and local deductions um, for the so-called high tax states, and most of them have. Uh, 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 senators and, and representatives are Democrats. It's going to be kind of messy. And if I can say something else that, that I find disturbing, this is true about the Affordable Care Act. It was passed 100% with Democrats. The opposition to that is 100% Republicans. I mean, there's something fundamentally disturbing when you can't have at least some people from the other party that can work together to try to do something for the country as opposed to something they can beat somebody over the head in the next election. Um, that's I, I don't see that really coming to an end. I think both parties are going to have a real crisis uh, over the next couple of years in terms of what direction they go in. It looks like the Democrats are moving farther left. The Republicans are going very vocally to the right. I don't see a lot of compromise there. No, this is a new way to quote-unquote lead, and I, I'm not really comfortable with it either. It doesn't seem like there's consensus on, on much of anything. Well, I want to scare you a little bit, okay? Yes. Because I did my homework, and I knew Medicare and Social Security had funding problems. I'll just read this. The Board of Trustees, the Social Security, and Medicare estimate that the trust fund that pays Medicare's hospital expenses will run out of money in 2029. 
I used to think that was far away. Mm -hmm. That's getting a lot closer. Social Security is projected to be solvent only until 2034. And we've known about this thing for these problems for a long time. Nobody says anything about them because, you know, these are all tough choices. And those people who had come up with ideas that might be uh, plausible, again, uh, they're from one party and the other party is going to attack them for it. Yeah, and I have have this fear that the only way they're going to deal with this problem, you're going to get close, and you have to do something. Well, and otherwise you fall off a cliff. Well, the thing is that whenever there is a suggestion out of any kind of reform of either one of these programs, there is a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth and, and pushing oh, sure. granny off the cliff in the wheelchair. I mean, oh, we know that, you know, right? That's that's a perfect reference. You know, you make a, a reasonable suggestion, and maybe it's a good one, maybe it's a bad one. But the other party just, oh, great, we got our next ad, and grandma goes flying off the, the cliff. But, you know, it's interesting, and I've known this for a long time because you know, I've been teaching for a long time, almost 30 years here and uh, about 11 years at other places, so kind of old. Um, but the perception among young people, and this has been true for at least 20 years, is that they don't think Social Security is going to help them. And uh, my parents' generation, of course, they'll fight like heck uh, if you even mention maybe we've got to raise the retirement age, maybe we've got to increase Social Security taxes, and uh, they're up in arms about it. There, there was a chance, and there may still be, for reform because younger people are more willing to accept reforms that, that might mean less coverage for them in the future. But, I, you know, you can hope. Um, I'm, not, I'm not optimistic. Let's go back to the, uh, the ending of the mandate for the ACA because there's a lot of discussion about what that possibly can mean. On one hand... I didn't think it was terribly fair that you could force people to buy a product. But on the other hand, yeah. now that this is all these uh, mechanisms have been set up, are, are people truly going to get harmed if certain people say, hey, I don't need to buy insurance anymore. Therefore, I'm young and healthy and I'm not buying it. Will this throw this into a, an economic calamity the way well, you see I, it? I, no. I mean, we, we've always had uninsured people. The ACA, in part, was designed to make sure everyone had coverage. That's noble, and I think most people would think that's reasonable. But if you look at the cost of the insurance that young people would have to buy, uh, it's kind of high. They look at the so-called tax or fine for not having insurance, and, okay, well, I'll voluntarily decide not to get insurance. If that mandate goes away, then the people that, young people that choose not to buy insurance do so because they don't want to buy it. Now, okay, they're uninsured, but it's not like you're taking something away from them. I think their concern is, well, this whole uh, health care uh, proposal or act was designed to have younger, healthier people subsidize older, sicker people. Right. So the premiums are, are going to be adjusted in such a way that, that younger people are going to pay a higher cost. And that's where you get into this death spiral, because if people don't go along with it, that means premiums and everyone else has have to go up. And, okay, well, you're going to have to get into it, uh, otherwise we'll fine you. I mean, <laughs> you know, if they just... When this act was first being debated, they said, well, let's not do this unless we have bipartisan support, because this isn't just going to affect Democrats or Republicans. It's going to affect everybody. Let's sit down and hammer this out. And at the very least, if somebody um, criticizes in the future, they're going to have to defend their vote. No Republican has to defend their vote right. on this thing. You're absolutely right. And then with the tax thing, if it goes kerfluey, no Democrat will have to defend a vote, right? 
Well, they have to defend uh, the Affordable Care Act to an extent, but then they, over the past year, I don't know if you noticed, a lot of Democrats are blaming Trump for talking this program down. It's terrible. It's lousy. We ought to repeal and replace. They say, well, the reason it's, it's, it's uh, uh, turning bad this year or worse this year is because of all this bad talk come from the, coming from the Republicans. I mean, this is... <laughs> I'd like them to do something for the country, you know. You should be willing to lose your job, you know. It, 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 there should, you don't have a right to be a senator or president or a member of the House of Representatives. Sometimes you have to make tough decisions and tough votes and tell people, well, look, this is what I think is best for the country long term. So many people want a two-year horizon. You know, that's the next election, so I want to make sure people right. vote for me in the next election. In terms of uh, the reconciliation process that is now underway between uh, the House and the Senate, uh, where do you think this will go? And what do you think is best for the people of the country in terms of what they see from this plan? I know the corporate tax, it it makes people divide it because they think it's another kiss to the rich. But in terms of what you see is best for all of us. Well, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but I did my homework, Sue. And uh, I, I knew there was a guy named John Steele Gordon. He's kind of an economic historian who wrote an editorial in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago, and I found it. And he said, we ought to just get rid of it. Just get rid of the corporate income tax. Uh, people are taxed already. The shareholders are taxed. And then the corporation is taxed. So they're taxed twice. Now, if you just got rid of the corporate income tax, the tax is zero, which it won't happen. Right. It's politically impossible. Well, then people that receive dividends are just going to pay on the dividends, and you can make that tax at the ordinary uh, rate on, on, on income. So you can adjust that tax rate, but it introduces so many different distortions, and there's, there's a bias towards corporations incurring debt because they can uh, deduct that as an expense as opposed to having dividends on the shareholders. I, I'm sorry, I did go off on a tangent. In terms of what will come out of committee, I I don't know, but the Republicans have gone too far and they risk too much. They're going to have a bill. Yeah, it's going to happen. There's no question about it. Maybe it'll take a week, maybe it'll take two weeks. I don't know what it'll be. They will have a bill and it will be signed. But but they're they're surely going to keep uh, the corporate tax rate at either. You know, Trump, Trump mentioned 22. I don't know why he did that. Because it seems as though they came to agreement on 20%. Um, and the only uh, question between the House and the Senate is, will it be effective next year or the year after that? But, and then, you know, in terms of uh, the income tax rates, um, I don't know how much they're, they're willing to change them now. Um, you want to know statistics since I did my homework? I could tell you're a very you're a very good student. Well, I don't want to sound like a dope, you know. You, you get this PhD in economics, and you ask me a question. Well, I don't really know. I, uh, it doesn't make me sound too good. Okay, let's see if I can find this here. Sixty um, percent of federal income tax returns are, are filed by those that earn less than fifty thousand dollars. So most of the tax returns, you kind of figure that are going to be uh, filed by people making 50000 or less. Okay. The total tax revenue that we get from that group is 7%. So they, they file tax, they pay tax, but not much. Those earning 200000 and above, 56% all, of all individual tax revenue. Wow. So if you say, well, we want to be fair to those people who pay most of the tax, we ought to be cutting 
taxes across the board, or heaven forbid, uh, the lower tax applies primarily to those making over 200000 That's not going to fly. So I think um, upper-income people are going to have to bite their bullet, if only because a lot of those people have a big chunk of deductions when it comes to state and local, if that stays, if that stays in the bill. Dr. Edward Scahill is a professor at the University of Scranton who recently joined 136 of his colleagues to sign an open letter to Congress supporting tax reform. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. It's difficult to single out the biggest influencer of editorial content for stylish magazines in the 80s and 90s, but the case can certainly be made for Tina Brown, who successfully helmed Vanity Fair magazine. After she turned that ink from red to black, she moved on to lead The New Yorker, an iconic literary magazine from 1992 through 1998. Like a good scribe, she kept a handwritten journal of her experiences, and they are now detailed in a new book, The Vanity Fair Diaries, 1983 to 1992. She spoke to us recently about chronicling the culture in a very interesting time, involving certain individuals whose names are now part of the current news cycle, for better or worse. Well, the best part was being, you know, scarcely out of my 20s, given this amazing assignment of turning around this big, affluent, glossy magazine, even though it was in dire straits when I took it over, it was still had only place to go was up. You know, in Condé Nast magazine, which was like glossy headquarters of like the happening scene, and just being a newcomer from England, just completely blown away by the kind of crazy excitement, in a sense, of the 80s with, you know, everything from Miami Vice to my Madonna to the Reagan White House, Diana dancing with John Travolta. It was a hell of a glamorous time for a young woman coming to the U.S. What was difficult was being a young woman, you know, who who had to kind of negotiate the snake pit of media culture, the kind of misogyny of the business world, the, the, the sense that I, then when I had my two children was the hard part was just balancing my tremendous love of my career with, you know, the need to be and the desire to be a, a good mom, you know, which was always a, tu- a tug and a tussle, as, as every working woman knows. And certainly in these situations with the, the rich and the famous and uh, the entitlement culture, what kind of things did you have to do to keep your values intact when there were so many things going on around you that may have seemed so amoral? Well, it's interesting. You know, reading the diaries, I am continually always the outsider. You know, I I never lose my sense of who I am. And, and that's partly because I was married to, and I'm married to, an enormously grounded man, uh, Harry Evans, who was a, a great newspaper in the U.K., and our family, our children, was always the kind of the moral center of my life. So that even though the world of the week was a big, dazzling kind of uh, black tie world, at weekends we would withdraw to our house uh, in Long Island and just be with the children. And I had a premature son who I had to really uh, pay a lot of, uh, of, of care and attention to because he had turned out he had Asperger's syndrome. So being, I think, the mom of a special needs child, really kept me grounded, actually, and always has. Now, uh, according to the information we received, one of the things that uh, happened for you that was kind of a break was when you got to go to the White House to work with uh, Ronald and Nancy Reagan. And in 1985, I would imagine that in the magazine world, there may have been 
not a great love for these two individuals. How did you approach going into that, knowing how great an assignment it is to go to the White House, right? But knowing also that people, regardless of how it turned out, may be critical of you. Well, you know, the interesting thing I felt about the Reagans is it didn't matter which side of the aisle you were. There was one thing about the Reagans everyone could agree on, which was they had an extraordinary relationship. Their marriage was the one aspect of the Reagans that you could agree about, that there was something about the dynamic between these two two people, which was sort of magic. So that's what I wanted to capture when we went to the White House to interview them and to, uh, to photograph them. And I took with me an amazing photographer, Harry Benson, who's photographed many a president before. And he did this brilliant thing of bringing with him a tape of Frank Sinatra singing Nancy with the Laughing Face. And he set up a white screen uh, in a room that was adjacent to the the state dining room where they were about to go and have a big black tie state banquet. And as uh, the Reagans kind of approached in their kind of long dress, Nancy in her black, uh, you know, Adolfo's gown, Adolfo gown and him in a black tie, etc. They came to the door and we heard them sort of talking and uh, and uh, Harry Benson hit the boombox. We played the, the Frank Sinatra and the two of them started to, Nancy said to Ronnie, uh, that's our song. We have to dance. And they they started to foxtrot together against this white screen to the Frank Sinatra. So, of course, you know, Harry Benson was leaping up and down with his camera, taking these pictures, and he was a very excitable Scotsman. And he, he was saying, ah, oh, Mr. President, Mr. President, you've got to kiss your wife, give your wife a kiss. And uh, Ronald Reagan leant towards Nancy, and they did this great green smooch together. It was like a classic Hollywood, like uh, into the sunset photograph with the two of them kissing. And it became known as the Reagan kiss. It went all over the world, this picture of the two of them dancing and, and embracing as they did. And, you know, it, it brought a kind of joy. And it was, I remember thinking as they, as they did this, wow, this is not just the Reagan kiss. This is the kiss of life for us. Because I knew that this cover, this photograph, this session was going to be so commercial, frankly, for Vanity Fair, which it was. When did something go really bad? <laughs> oh, there were constant cover debacles. There was a, when when things went really bad was when I was when Cy Newhouse, the owner, uh, was thinking very hard about closing the magazine, and he decided he was going to close the magazine. And I learned about it on a, an advertising trip. I was out of town, and I suddenly heard that we were not allowed to hire anybody anymore. Which, of course, you all know what that means. It means that you're going to close. So I went absolutely crazy, and I flew back on the red eye and confronted him. And I said, I know this is happening. You know, we, we, I first of all got my publisher, the advertising guy, to go in and do his, the big sell of his life. And then I show up in the morning, you know, on the red eye, and I said to him, you know, I want to tell you, we have these three incredible stories coming. And I showed him, you know, the, the Reagan cover. I, you know, there was a great piece that I had in the works about uh, Princess Diana because I broke the news that uh, there were, actually the marriage was, was, was a disaster. And then the third uh, amazing piece was Dominic Dahn, our star writer's coverage of the trial of Klaus von Bülow, the accused murderer. These were incredible stories for the magazine to have. And he said, okay, you've got another year, which I knew meant another six months, because <laughs> that's the way he was. But we turned it around in that time. Within, within that year, we became number one on the hot list of magazines uh, for, the, for the kind of biggest growth that anyone was seeing. So we did turn it around, but it was all about the stories. And most certainly the the story of uh, Princess Diana is one of, you know, great hope and then great tragedy. And forget it. Some people, I think, forget, Tina, these at the end of the day, here's a human being. Absolutely. And the the pressures that this uh, young lady felt to be in this 
spotlight were so yeah. tremendous that they they led her to have all kinds of behind the scenes problems. I mean, well, I think you know what's staggering today as we see uh, the, the the sort of joy about Meghan Markle is to one thing to consider, which you know really was very strong in my piece in Vanity Fair, and we you can read in the diaries about how that whole story uh, and, and my information really about the marriage came about. But you know she was Meghan Markle is the same age that Diana was when she died. Okay. Diana was 36, and when she married Charles, she was 20. And I think, you know, somehow what got lost at the time was that this was a child, you know, really marrying into the House of Windsor. And, you know, it was a child going into this very stuffy royal household who then had the celebrity of a Britney Spears. I mean, all of the pressures on Diana were intense. And, uh, you know, that's really what the piece that I ran, which I called The Mouse That Roared, because it was about a young, sweet little English rose who turned into this huge kind of diva global force, in a sense. Uh, the great transformation that she was forced to, 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 to have in her, in her whole persona to, to, to cope with it all. Did you have the urge to protect her? I felt badly for them both. Actually, at the time, I also felt badly for him, quite honestly, because mm-hmm. I felt that Charles had been sort of pushed into this by his parents, and he was in love with somebody else. He was in love with Camilla. So it was a tragedy for them both. Now, during the course of your career, you obviously had um, working relationships with Harvey Weinstein. Did you suspect during your working relationships that uh, he was doing terrible things behind the scenes? Did people talk? No, he was doing terrible things in business, which is what I saw. <laughs> and uh, I got out of there. I mean, you know, he, he finally closed. I, I, start, I started Talk Magazine with him, which was probably not the wisest career move I ever made after leaving The New Yorker. And I almost, from day one, I went to work for him. I thought, oh, my God, I've made the most titanic mistake here, getting into business with this guy because of the way he treated people and treated me. You know, he, 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 he's Jekyll and Hyde once he thinks he has you. And uh, he was abusive, he was profane, he was dishonest. So he was a terrible guy. I did not know that on top of all of that, behind the scenes, he was also this wild, you know, psychopath when it came to sex. I mean, I'm just stunned by by the extent and the depravity of what he was doing. I mean, it was just amazing. I imagine with some of these individuals, though, the power is, is so much of an intoxicant that they really feel that they can do just about anything they want to anybody. That's right. He was drunk with his own power. And, you know, the, um, the difficulty for everybody around him was that, you know, this, the, the Jekyll and Hyde part was that actually he made very good movies, you see. So it was a very strange thing. It's not like this very gross and horrendous individual was making gross and horrendous movies. I mean, he wasn't. He was making beautiful movies like Shakespeare in Love and, you know, The English Patient and all of these great films that were very beautiful, sensitive films, right? And he was he was actually, though, the exact opposite. You know, he was this terrible guy. So all of these actresses, I mean, you know, they thought they were coming for an interview about a, a part in one of these wonderful films, only to find he, they were, you know, absolutely assaulted. And uh, it, it's really an extraordinary story, and so is the story of how he suppressed it. I mean, I did note it. I did see how how incredibly uh, paranoid he was about the press and you know all of that. But you know, I mean, this all came later. We can we now know stuff we didn't know then. Certainly, you also have had tremendous insight to the president of the United States, Donald Trump, and mm-hmm. I think it's worth talking about your impressions of uh, who he really is because uh, he's being defined all kinds of different ways. In, in your opinion, who is Donald Trump? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. In my diary, he's both people, as he is today, two people, in a sense. I mean, uh, you know, when I first meet him in 1987 in the diaries, I describe how I first read uh, his book, The Art of the Deal, and decide to extract it and make a big splash in it in Vanity Fair. And I write in the, in, in, in the book, I'll say, I say, you know, uh, this book is BS, but it's authentic BS. Uh, which is, you know, a, a contradiction in terms. But the point is, I said he's got a, gr- a very funny voice, a very candid, real voice that I think, you know, comes right off the page. And I say, you know, I think the American public will like nothing more, which was a kind of prescient at the time. And then I meet him at a dinner party shortly afterwards, and he's all over me, and he goes, oh, Tina, you know, I'm on the cover of Newsweek. Uh, what do you think of that, he said. You know, I'm, I'm uh, Time magazine. I could have had that. Or what's, what's better, Time or Newsweek? I said, well, I think Time. He said, well, I, you know, I, I definitely could have had Time, but I decided to go for Newsweek, and I've, I've sold, you know, it was this usual nonsense, really, in the sense that, he, that he's talked since, but it was very beguiling in a way. It was funny. It was fresh. It was, it was obviously nonsense, but at the same time, it was fun. Then as time goes by, it gets less fun. We start to cover him uh, as a business story and find that a lot of what he's telling our reporter, Marie Brenner, was in fact untrue, that you know, his portrait of his businesses was much rosier than the facts about his businesses, which were many of them in bankruptcies and so on. And, of course, the very uh, ugly divorce with Ivana. So all of this we covered as, as extensively as we had his successes. And he got very angry about that and, and uh, very abusive about it when we published it. And became particularly angry because the author uh, of the piece wrote that he had a copy of Hitler's speeches in his office, which really caused a tremendous amount of news. And shortly after that, she's sitting at a benefit, and she feels something cold and wet in her back, and she realizes as she looks up, it's Donald Trump. He's emptied a glass of wine down her her dress, Um, which kind of shows a little bit much more of the sort of, you know, the fight back Donald Trump who will never forget a grievance. Were you stunned when uh, America went for this man? And and do you think as time goes on, uh, America, because some people do admire him and and some people uh, can't stand him, do you think that he will be to the American people, quote-unquote, less fun as time goes along? Well, it's very interesting. He is dropping in the polls, uh, but I think he has a base that seems just to be so fiercely antagonistic to liberals, in a sense, that they almost, every time he pokes the liberals in the eye, that's for them enough, it seems, you know, that the... uh, you know, it seems like he takes a swipe at uh, something beloved, whether it's the environment or, or whether it's, you know, diversity of any kind, that uh, just uh, is almost done deliberately to anger that, that cadre of America. And uh, I don't know whether it will become old. You know, I, I, I do think America is going to get very tired of the drama. You know, at a certain point, people want to get on with their lives and their jobs. And, but, of course, the economy is doing very well. So who, who knows? I mean, it's, jobs are there and, and the economy is roaring along. So... It's possible that we could re-elect Donald Trump. I have read The New Yorker since I was a teenager. I absolutely adore that publication. <laughs> I think Good. it's it's so wonderful. I mean, everything about it, even if I, you know, vehemently disagreed with what I read, I'm going to read it anyway because I find it to be very important. When you were given the opportunity to lead The New Yorker, uh, what what kind of thoughts were going through your head about the history, the tradition, and maybe what you wanted to do to tinker with it? Because you know it is, um, even formatically, it's very similar all the time. Well, you know, when I, after turning around Vanity Fair, you know, and I was given the opportunity to then take over the editorship of The New Yorker, I first of all wondered, is this right for me? You know, I mean, Vanity Fair is a big top. It's like a marquee, a circus is the New Yorker, which was more of an ivory tower, going to be, you know, something that I resonate with. And I went back to the very first editions in the 20s, and I really found 
the magazine really did speak to me in that first incarnation, much more than in the later years. It, it, it was more newsy, it was shorter and longer pieces, it had a vitality and a pulse that I really did resonate with. And I decided I wanted to bring back that pulse to The New Yorker and open it up visually. You know, I added photographs for the first time. I completely revamped the covers and brought in wonderful, relevant, you know, more newsy sort of illustrations that, that, that bounced off the culture. And I had some amazing, a whole new raft of writers who were every bit as great as the old, including David Remnick, the current editor, and Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote The Tipping Point, and Jeffrey Tubin, who, of course, is now one of CNN's big commentators. So I brought in Jane Mayer, you know, who wrote the amazing book about the Koch brothers. So I, I really did refresh the talent pool, totally changed the visuals, and uh, kind of updated it for the uh, 20th century. How much do you love Roz Chast? Oh, I love Roz Chast. I mean, she, <laughs> she, you know, there's so many people to love at the New Yorker. I, 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 uh, I appointed Bob Mankoff, the great cartoonist, to be the cartoon editor. He's so hilarious. The cartoon meetings were some of the most fun things that I ever did, except that you have to realize that cartoonists are also the most kind of curmudgeonly people of all. I mean, they're the ones who are <laughs> the gloomiest of people. The funnier they are, the more bad-tempered they are, and I learned that very early. Tina Brown, how much does uh, Absolutely Fabulous uh, appeal to you? <laughs> well, you know, my my world was more about, you know, stories and, and, and uh, journalism. But, yeah, there is a kind of the Absolutely Fabulous world definitely was resonating around me at Condé Nast at the time. That's Tina Brown, writer and editor, who spoke to us recently about her new book, The Vanity Fair Diaries. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com.